This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hi, it's Celeste. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. And just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is changing rapidly, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the latest news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm your host, Celeste Headley. It's time for another edition of the News Roundup, and it's been a week of smoke. I really do wonder, walking here today through the smog and the smoke at Washington, D.C., yeah, it's a bad day, but you wonder what impact it has on the kids who wonder, is this the future for me? And mirrors. The person I am talking about who is obsessed with the mirror, who never admits a mistake, who never admits a fault, is Donald Trump. And history-making federal indictments. I'm an innocent man. I did nothing wrong. I'm innocent, and we will prove that very, very soundly and hopefully very quickly. We have a lot to talk about. With us, Anita Kumar, Senior Managing Editor, Standards, Ethics, and Content at Politico. Anita, hello. Great to be back with you. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, we have Zoe Clark. Zoe is Political Director and Co-Host of It's Just Politics at Michigan Radio. Hi, Zoe. Great to be here. And we also have John Yang with us. He's the anchor for PBS News Weekend and correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. John, great to have you. Delighted to be back. Let's start with the news that just broke late Thursday. Former President Donald Trump has been indicted on federal charges connected to classified documents that were found at his Mar-a-Lago estate by the FBI last August. He is expected to appear in federal court in Miami for an arraignment Tuesday. John, this is not the first time Donald Trump has been indicted since he was president. What's different with this case? Well, this time, I mean, the striking thing to me is that he's being charged under the uh, the Espionage Act, uh, essentially for mishandling uh, these classified documents that he, that would have been discovered at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, it's also different because I think that this is going to be a much higher platform in federal court than the uh, the other trial, the uh, sort of false records business, false records uh, case in the state of New York. And I also think that these charges are a little bit easier to understand, easier for people to grasp. So, so Anita, the, the indictment is not unsealed yet until Tuesday. Um, so what do we know about what the former president is being charged with? Well, you're exactly right. We don't know all the details, but we do know um, some information from some sourcing, some from uh, President Trump's own lawyers who who have you know publicly said what they think this is. Um, we think that there are going to be seven charges. Um, we have heard, as John has just said, that this is uh, an alleged violation of the Espionage Act. We've also heard that there might be false statement charges and several obstruction-related charges. So things like, you know, he he tried to cover up, uh, possibly tried to cover up, you know, keeping these classified documents. All of this stems from taking documents 
uh, when he left the White House. Did he take them? Were they classified? Was he uh, not allowed to take them? And then, of course, whether he continued to try to keep them and and tell federal authorities that he didn't have them. He didn't have anything else. Uh, this has been a long, drawn-out saga for months. There was, yeah. you know, the search at Mar-a-Lago. There was a uh, this, you know, the, President Trump arguing that he he should have known of this search. You know, there was a raid basically at Mar-a-Lago. So we've we've known that this was possibly coming and that this investigation was out there, but we never fully knew uh, what these charges will be, and we won't exactly until, uh, as you said, this indictment is unsealed. Although Anita Mike Pence, who just announced his candidacy for president, has asked Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, to unseal them, unseal them earlier and and make a statement. Is that possible? Um, yeah, we're actually hearing different things that there might be an unsealing as early as Friday. So it is possible. I suppose anything is possible um, that it could be before Tuesday. We don't know. We keep hearing sort of differences of opinion. I don't think they're going to do it because uh, Vice President Pence asked Merrick Garland. I think they're going to do it because there's public interest or because they had planned to do it, uh, whatever those reasons are. It's It's interesting that the Trump team itself, the lawyers say they don't even have the actual documentation. So, Mm. uh, you know, I think there's a lot of interest. And of course, this is a former president of the United States. They they understand fully well at the Department of Justice that there is intense, uh, you know, interest in what is going on and that the pressure is on them. So, you know, I would not surprise me if something came out earlier uh, officially just so that people had that information. And, and Zoe, in the meantime, there's a little bit of an information vacuum that is not actually empty. It's being filled with a lot of speculation and right. outrage on one side. Um, what expectations should we have? What should we be watching for as we as information trickles in? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's it's shocking that, as Anita said, you know, the Justice Department, Jack Smith, hasn't put this out yet. Also, what is not shocking is, as you note, uh, Donald Trump and allies are filling that vacuum. I mean, multiple emails and uh, statements and messages from the Trump campaign came out last night after this was made public. I mean, I counted one with dozens and dozens of bullet points just simply about uh, the prosecutor, Jack Smith. And, and this is the Trump playbook, right? Um, and, and, and Jack Smith hasn't publicly spoken about the case. I don't think anyone should be shocked that he hasn't. He hasn't talked about it since he took up the case in November. Yeah, um, I just want to yeah. add here that Jack Smith is the U.S. special counsel who exactly. was appointed to oversee this count point yes. case by the Department yes. of Justice. So, John, as we mentioned, Donald Trump is now the first former president to face federal criminal charges. What do you think this means for U.S. politics as we move forward? I think we are really in uncharted territory, and it's very interesting to watch the Republicans' reactions this morning. Uh, You have, obviously, the Speaker of the the House, Kevin McCarthy, McCarthy and other strong Trump allies adopting his message that this is a trumped-up case, that this is the, uh, the, the, the deep state still trying to fight Donald Trump. But you're hearing a, from a lot of other Republicans, you're hearing crickets. You're hearing no reaction yet. I think they're trying to figure out how to react. Uh, so I don't know that, that anyone really knows how this is going to affect uh, the politics. I don't think it's going to drive voters away, strong Trump voters away from him. I think they also feel that this uh, is evidence that the uh, that Washington is against him and uh, and the establishment is against him. But can the other candidates find traction with this? I just don't know. 
Well, speaking of other candidates, um, earlier this week, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, who is now running against his uh, old boss, spoke with CNN and said this. I would just hope that uh, there would be a way for them to move forward without the dramatic and drastic and divisive step of indicting a former president of the United States. We've got to find a way to move our country forward and, and restore confidence in equal treatment under the law in this country. So, Anita, some things Mike Pence has said seem to imply he thinks the genie is now out of the bottle with his indictment and that and that the DOJ will not hesitate in the future to indict future presidents. It's kind of the slippery slope argument, right? Would Do you buy that? Yeah, I think what the vice former vice president said is a little bit difficult to understand, quite frankly. I mean, he's, he's given a couple interviews now at this point, um, before and after the indictment, and he's kind of saying both things. I mean, he is in some ways saying what some of these other Republicans are saying, which is, you know, as we just heard, that this should have been resolved another way. Exactly what you were saying. This is a slippery slope. This isn't some precedent that should be set that a former president is being charged. But but he also said something else. He said no one is above the law. Yeah. I, I don't know what's in this document. <laughs> um, I don't know what's in the indictment. And I think this is really indicative of more uh, politics of what's going on here with this Republican field, as John mentioned, they're in a box here. You know, they know that there are so many Trump supporters out there who think this is, you know, politically motivated and they support President Trump and they don't care about these charges. And so they don't want to alienate those people. Um, but they also know that these are serious charges. We don't, of course, know what's going to happen, but these are federal charges against the former president of the United States, a very serious issue. So they are trying to thread this needle, and it's very, very difficult for, for all of them. Most, you know, probably at the top of the list is the, his former running mate, Mike yeah. Pence. So uh, he's trying to do a little bit of both things. So we know the wheels of justice can turn extremely slowly. Uh, and yet Donald Trump said, we heard him in that earlier clip, um, that he's going to prove his innocence, quote, very quickly. So, Zoe, you know, look, the, the, there are primary votes beginning in less than a year from now. Yeah. How, how quickly could this happen? I mean, is it possible this will still be going on when people are voting for the next candidate? It certainly is. And I mean, this is the, the the question, right, that is sort of the cloud in all of this and, and this parallel conversation about what is happening legally and in the courts and then what is going to be happening on the ground when votes are actually yeah. happening. And much like Donald Trump from the second that he sort of, you know, took that elevator down at Trump Tower, you know, it is newness, right, and these historical norms that become broken. And this would be yet another one, you know, a, a president or a former president running for president under federal indictment. And we just have not seen that as a country before. Well, we're about to see it now. Uh, We're just getting started with our roundup of the week's biggest news. We'll be back with more after this short break. Stay with us. It's the news roundup. Now, the pool of 2024 GOP presidential candidates just got bigger Um, It was already quite large, but this week, three newcomers announced their bids and their stances on everything from the economy to Donald Trump. President Trump's words were reckless. They endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol. But the American people deserve to know that on that day, President Trump also demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Now voters will be faced with the same choice. 
Beware of the leader who won't admit any of those shortcomings. Because you know what the problem is with a leader like that? A leader like that thinks America's greatness resides in the mirror he's looking at. I believe that America's greatness resides out there. To unlock the best of America, we need a leader who's clearly focused on three things. Economy, energy, and national security. So that was in order. Former Vice President Mike Pence, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. John, can you tell us a little bit about the strategies here, not just in those clips, but are we seeing how each of these candidates might square up against their opponents and the the still Trump run, front runner, Donald Trump? And can you start us off with Mike Pence? Well, Mike Pence, I think uh, Mike Pence is trying to uh, sort of vindicate himself, as it were, or, or sort of claim the uh, the anti-Trump. Uh, the, the, the Trumpism without Trump, and which is also uh, Ron DeSantis's uh, lane, I think. Um, and it's interesting because a lot of these candidates um, are, are, or let me put it, let me back up and put it this way: in if Donald Trump was a normal politician or a regular politician, the position he is in in the in the polls right now, and also with fundraising, would bar anybody else from getting in the race who thought they had a chance, who were not not just sort of. Uh, what I call ego candidates or vanity candidates. Um, but I think that they're waiting to see what happens. Um, that's part of it. They're, they're waiting to see what, happened, uh, what happens next week when, the, uh, when, uh, when Donald Trump is, is in court. But there also seems to me to a, a, a little bit of a battle continuing or maybe the last gasp of a, of a battle for the Republican Party. You've got T- Senator Tim Scott, Who's trying to open up the party, make it a, a, a bigger tent as the uh, as the only uh, African American candidate in the race right now? Uh, you've got Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, who, in a lot of ways, is is the sort of old Republican, mainstream Republican candidate uh, who's trying to trying to see if he can get the party back in that direction. There are a, a great number of candidates. And and let me put this to you, Anita, because there were, I think if you include the people who withdrew before the primaries in 2016, there were over 20 candidates in the GOP field. What does this mean when the, when the field is quite large, especially for the conservatives? Yeah, well, we're not quite to 20 yet, but uh, we are getting up there. I mean, it's, it's actually kind of a little bit surprising maybe that it's so large because when you look at the polls of Republican voters or likely Republican voters, you know, Donald Trump is far and away uh, the leader. No one's even close. Uh, you know, the second closest, I suppose, is DeSantis and, and Trump is still sort of leading, you know, very handily. So, you know, it's all these... Republicans feel like they may be able to, you know, take on Trump. Um, You know, that's basically what we're seeing. You know, we're not seeing everybody talking about Donald Trump, but he is the guy sort of there in the room and they're going to have to deal with him. You know, there is an argument to be made um, that so many people are getting in that the crowded field is actually going to help him, though, Um, is going to help Trump because all these people are going to split, you know, the anti-Trump uh, you know, people in the party are going to split amongst all these people. And then this gives uh, Trump, you know, more of an edge. We we really don't know. And of course, we as we have we've talked about this, we have a lot of uh, President Trump has a lot of issues going on with his uh, two indictments now, um, other possibility of, you know, other 
legal issues coming his way. So, you know, there's just so much up in the air at this point. And the question is whether these any of these candidates could possibly even chip away. And right now we're seeing it's just not happening. Well, speaking of of legal issues that may be coming his way, we got a question, Zoe, from a listener named David. And this is probably a rhetorical question, but I'm going to ask it to you anyway. David says, if these documents are declassified, as Trump says, then I should be able to get a copy under the Freedom of Information Act, correct? Don't we all want to see all of the documents all the time? I feel you, David. Um, That's a great question, and I am certainly not a legal expert. I would leave that to the National Archives to be able to answer that. But look, these are what these indictments, and as we've been talking about, waiting to see what all of these documents are. We should note... You know, CNN did some amazing reporting uh, last week. There, there was actually a, an audio bit of, of Trump basically saying, well, OK, I know that these actually aren't, you know, declassified and I shouldn't have them. So even the legality of, you know, the fact that Trump seemed to know uh, at that point that they weren't declassified is all going to be at an issue. Let's turn to a little bit of news coming out of Congress. Um, House leaders canceled scheduled votes for the rest of the week there, and that comes in the midst of a revolt from far-right members of the House who brought votes on the floor to a halt. People, like any family, have differences of opinion, and it's a time after the last big vote to get together and talk. And it's only healthy that you talk through it. Look, I always think tension only makes you stronger. Conflict makes you stronger if you deal with it. If you avoid it, it will, it will perpetuate and become a bigger problem. That was Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking to reporters on Wednesday. So, Anita, a group of 11 conservative House members sunk a procedural vote, rule vote, Tuesday. That was uh, seen as a rebuke to GOP leadership. What is happening here? Yeah, uh, it's been it's been sort of startling to see by people that, that cover Congress Um you know, this goes back to the debt ceiling vote um, and and really just McCarthy in general. Remember, you know, way back some months ago at the beginning of the year when he was um, seeking the speakership, you know, there were all those many votes. Uh, you know, we had a lot of people, a lot of conservatives who initially were not sure he was the guy, right? There were many votes yeah. to put him into speakership. What's happened more recently, of course, is that we've been ta- we've all been talking about this uh, this vote that needed to happen to to so that the United States wouldn't default on its on its uh, you know spending, and the 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 president Joe Biden and the speaker uh, came to a deal. They basically struck a deal to raise the debt ceiling. In that, they also struck a larger deal on spending. Well, these conservatives, you know, d- didn't much like that. They opposed that. There were enough votes to get it through, and you know, we all kind of moved on and thought, okay, well that crisis is averted. But actually, there are some Republicans, conservatives that are quite upset with him. And so they are sort of holding up uh, the rest of the agenda right now until they resolve, as they say, they resolve their differences. You've heard the speaker and others talk about how, well, this is a family and we've got to work some things out. And so they've pushed things off um, for a few days until they can try to resolve those those issues. Um, and yeah. so what we're finding is some of these other votes that you would think have nothing to do with, with anything are, are not happening. And of course, um, these were a couple of the votes that were over... Um, gas stoves, um, you know, yeah. uh, so it's just sort of, you know, the protection of gas stoves. So it Regulation, was sort of yeah. an interesting, <laughs> yeah, interesting thing that happened there. But but it's really about this conservative flank in the in the Republican Party in the House. And what are we to make of that 
John. I mean, having just said how crowded the GOP field is already for president, how put in, in context for us this rift in the GOP between these very far right end of the party and the leadership. Well, you know, just to go back to what the speaker said, if tension and differences make you stronger, uh, the speaker is going to be very, very strong uh, by the end of this Congress. What gives this, it's a small group, the Freedom Caucus, or a relatively small group of the Republicans in the House, but what gives them oversized influence is the narrowness of the margin uh, between the Democrats, uh, between the Republican and the Democrats that give the Republicans the majority. I think that you're going to see them now. They sort of flex. They figured out how to flex their muscles, how to show their unhappiness, and this is all goes back really to the uh, to the debt ceiling deal. Uh, not only did the Freedom Caucus not agree with the deal itself, they agree they disagreed that the deal even existed, that the Speaker <laughs> even uh, went to the White House to negotiate. Uh, and now, as I say, they found a way to, to, to get attention, to get the Speaker's attention, and we'll see what happens after this. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit more about the, the Democrats crowding the field as well. There is one particular person who has entered the the, demo, the field, the contest for the Democratic nomination, and that is anti-vax activist Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and he's gotten an endorsement from the founder of Twitter, Jack Dorsey. So, Zoe, do these endorsements mean much? I mean, Robert F. Kennedy not polling all that well, but will the endorsement for somebody like Dorsey help? I don't know. I mean, I think you could also write a headline that said something more like, you know, billionaire endorses anti-vaxxer, right? And and sort of yeah. take out these well-known names and sort of personalities. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really, you know, you, you, you can't buy name recognition like the Kennedy name. Um, and True. so this is, you know, this idea of, of, you know, he did the Twitter space, of course, and making a name for himself, a, a different kind of name than the Kennedy name, as I noted, uh, being very anti-vax. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing some poll numbers that show him what it at 20%. But, you know, we are so early, as yeah. we've talked about earlier this hour. And, you know, there is a difference when you are running for president, as we talked about the 10 right now yep. uh, Republicans, versus when you are primarying a sitting incumbent president yeah. who has announced that he is running. Yeah. Now, let's talk about some news coming from the Supreme Court. On Thursday, the court upheld a provision from the landmark 1965 Voting Rights Act that prevents racial redistricting. It was a five to four vote, and the court ruled new congressional maps in Alabama deny African-American voters a reasonable chance to elect a representative of their choice. Anita, a lot of people talked about being surprised by this decision. Why was this a surprise? Yeah, I mean, we just really didn't expect it, and it's kind of turned everything on its head. Um, it's, it's you know, there are these court watchers who expect certain things to happen, and we certainly dis didn't expect it. We What we saw was Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who are both conservatives, join the court's three liberals in the majority. So that's one of the reasons right there, right? I mean, what we're seeing, this uh, six to three uh, conservative majority on the court doesn't always band together, but we've seen them do that in a lot of ways, and it's sort of expected. John Roberts is sometimes, uh, I wouldn't call him a swing voter, he's a swing justice, he's still a conservative, but, you know, he, he might 
change a little bit, but we've seen what we're seeing in this case was was something that was not expected there. And so uh, we have a lot of people kind of trying to figure out what's what's going to happen. Um, you know, this basically means that these districts will now be redrawn. Um, and so that was a that was a surprise. So these maps that were used in the 2022 House elections are now illegal. Zoe, what does that mean, if anything, for the representatives who were elected under these now illegal maps. Right. Well, we could see, I mean, how these candidates want to handle this, whether they are going to be court challenges. But I I want to go back to what Anita is saying and just the sort of historic nature and the fact that this really was just a shocking and surprising, I think, decision from this court, Um, especially as we've talked about on this show over the past few months, you know, the institution and questioning around ethics and and to see this decision i have to just be curious i mean we always hear about the supreme court not listening to the noise outside in public opinion but boy was this one fascinating but to your point i mean and in a house right now that we know is such a slim majority for republicans and as we saw you know even speaker mccarthy as have saying a little chaos in the house this week and and basically shutting it down until monday what that could mean uh, for future votes it's going to be really interesting to watch So less than a week into Pride Month, the LGBTQ advocacy organization, the Human Rights Campaign, took an unprecedented step. The group declared a state of emergency for LGBTQ plus people in the U.S. Here is HRC President Kelly Robinson on Wednesday on Democracy Now! We're seeing real life violence impacting our community from California to the one in five of every hate crime being motivated by anti-LGBTQ plus bias. And in this moment, when people are traveling across the country, when they're deciding to move or what schools to go to, we have a responsibility to let people know that one, there's an imminent health and safety crisis facing our community. And two, there's a dizzying patchwork of protections for us and for our families, depending on the state that you're in. So, John, what does it mean to declare a state of emergency? Well, I think for so many years, the Pride Month has been a, a month to celebrate gains and advancements uh, in LGBTQ plus rights, uh, serving in the military openly, uh, same-sex marriage, and last year's, uh, or two years ago, Supreme Court ruling that the civil rights protections for employment apply to gay uh, gay men and women and transgender people. And now you're seeing all this under attack. Uh, as a matter of fact, there, there is going to be a Supreme Court decision later this month in a case where the Supreme Court could well say that a business can deny service mm-hmm. to someone because they're gay. We're discussing the week's biggest headlines and we'll be back with more after this short break. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands, but because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. When the economic news gets to be a bit much... Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money. We're here for you, like your friends trying to figure out all the most confusing parts. One story, one idea, every day, all in 10 minutes or less. The Indicator from Planet Money, your friendly economic sidekick. From NPR. 
Let's get back to the roundup. So Thursday, President Biden announced a series of measures meant to fight discrimination against LGBTQ plus Americans. And that includes the creation of a new role at the Department of Education, a point person to fight back against book bans. The president spoke on that at the White House about a month ago. I never thought I'd be a president who was fighting against elected officials trying to ban and banning books. Empty shelves don't help kids learn very much. And I've never met a parent who wants a politician dictating what their kid can learn and what they can think or who they can be. So, Zoe, why is this issue important for the Biden administration, especially as it works to limit discrimination against LGBTQ plus Americans? Absolutely. Well, I mean, CNN just reported, in fact, that at least 417 anti-LGBTQ bills were introduced across the country in state legislatures. That is just in the first quarter of this year. Um, and they note that twice the number of bills introduced all of last year. So that's according to data from ACLU. So, look, 75 anti-LGBTQ bills have already been signed into law so far this year. And these are bills that have gained national attention, bills that having to do with, you know, bathrooms can be used and gender-affirming care bans for youth. And, you know, Biden has always talked about uh, his support for the LGBTQ community. Let's remember back when he was vice president, coming out even before then President Obama and endorsing gay marriage. Yeah, and so this true. is a theme for for President Biden. And I think it's just particularly in the climate in which we find ourselves uh, a meaningful action uh, during this June, which of course is Pride Month. And speaking of climate, um, this week the East Coast is dealing with something that has become routine in the western part of the U.S., and that is wildfire smoke. For weeks, smoke from wildfires that are raging in Canada has traveled hundreds of miles south, and settled over large path, path, uh, patches of the United States. Tuesday, the smoke set bad air quality records in Buffalo, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and New York City had the dirtiest air of any major city in the world on Tuesday. This may be the first time we've experienced something like this on this magnitude. Let's be clear, it is not the last Climate change is accelerating these conditions, and we must continue to draw down emissions, improve air quality, and build resiliency. New York City is clearly a national leader on public health and climate action. And these dangerous air quality conditions are clearly an urgent reminder that we must act now to protect our city, our environment, and the future of our children. That is New York City Mayor Eric Adams speaking there. So, Anita, this smoke has traveled, as I mentioned, hundreds of miles well down below Washington, D.C. A lot of people saw the photos of that orange haze over New York City this week, very reminiscent of San Francisco a few years ago. How bad has the air quality been it has been bad by uh, standards of, you know, sti- scientists looking at this New York City, I think was, I think it, they were saying the worst it's been. And, you know, California, as you've mentioned, has sort of dealt with this before, but it's it's been bad and it's been bad in a lot of different places. You know, in the Washington, D.C. area where I am, there have been cancellations, children who can't go outside. You know, there's no there's no recess. You've seen baseball canceled. You've seen outdoor activities canceled. Uh, You know, they do think that it's going to be getting better, um, but it has been sort of 
an awakening, I think, for a lot of people on the East Coast and some other places that are feeling this sort of for the first time where our, you know, people, you know, residents on the West Coast kind of feel this, uh, you know, have dealt with this a lot. And so it's been sort of, uh, you know, really interesting. These are big, hugely populated areas also that are being affected. So I think that's another one of those issues um, where you understand it when it happens to you. <laughs> uh, you know, so so yeah. we've seen a lot of disruptions and it's, it's starting to clear up. I think, Zoe, a lot of people have just now been introduced to Air Now, that online air quality tracker that comes from the Environmental Protection Agency. Maybe they never heard of it before. Apparently but more folks were logging on there than Facebook the other day, <laughs> which I think you tell you something, right? Yeah, it, it really does. Mm-hmm. It, how's the air in Michigan? And I should mention for those, a, a quick trivia here, Detroit is the, is the only large U.S. city that is actually north of Canada. So I imagine in Michigan, you guys are, are breathing that in. Oh, absolutely. And and I mean, earlier in this week, uh, Detroit was in the top 10 cities. In fact, at one point, uh, the worst only second to Dubai. This was before it had sort of moved east over to New York. And this is really problematic because particularly in places like Detroit, where asthma rates are already higher than the state average, it's really it's really concerning. And we actually had our own uh, wildfire burn about 3,000 acres uh, north of the capital city in Lansing earlier this week. That is mm. because of, again, these continued dry conditions, uh, low humidity. Lansing, our capital city right now, there is a burn ban in place. So it, it is, it's, it's, you know... Millions and millions of folks across the country dealing with this right now. As we mentioned, uh, many people in the Western U.S. are all already familiar with it. California fires in 2018 set bad air quality records in San Francisco and L.A. set those records in 2020. Last month, smoke from fires in Alberta, Canada, traveled 2,000 miles and then settled like a toad over Denver and stayed there for a week. Um, this is now an issue for a really large part of the country. So, so John, what are we supposed to do about it? Is it are our options basically just stay inside? Well, yes. I mean, that's what the public health officials are urging. Uh, just people, especially those with uh, with breathing issues like asthma, uh, COPD, to just stay, uh, stay, stay inside. But I think the, the difficulty of this is that you cannot regulate or control this wildfire smoke uh, other than preventing wildfires, other than doing controlled burns and uh, weeding out uh, undergrowth uh, to try to prevent these fires. Um, and it is, I mean, there, there was a study at Stanford University um, uh, earlier this month that was released earlier this month that said there was a 27-fold increase in the number of Americans exposed to extreme, extreme smoke days between 2006 and 2020. Uh, a lot of people link that to climate change, that the climate change is making wildfires bigger and more intense. Um, and also... You talk about the effect in, on the West Coast and in the Western United States. The same study said that 60% of the people who are affected by wildfire smoke are in another state other than where the fire is. And so this, this smoke does, does not recognize borders, uh, either state or international. So, Anita, a hotter, drier climate caused by decades of burning fossil fuels has led to bigger, more intense wildfires across North America, as John was just explaining. Is this 
a new normal for the United States and frankly for many places in the world? Yeah, I think we're seeing, you know, if you look, talk to the scientists or hear from them, they are saying that things are getting worse. I mean, the reporting from Canada is that a lot of these fires, and there's there's hundreds, it sounds like, you know, across yeah. the country, a lot around Quebec, though, um, you know, were caused by lightning strikes, human, you know, error, human starting them, but that they are bigger and more intense because of what you said, right? Because of the drier climates or the uh, uh, because of climate change. And so I think we're, you know, we're always going to see some of those things, right? Lightning strikes, human error, but but they do seem to be getting worse. And if you talk to scientists, they say that is the, you know, the way that it is going, which is why you're seeing uh, some politicians, primarily Democrats, saying that we, you know, the United States and other countries have to do more. But we haven't seen that this, of course, you know, what's going on in these last few days has really changed anything politically in terms mm of, you know, any changes um, on legislation on Capitol Hill or anywhere else to do something different. It's It seems like we're pretty much in the same place, but it's brought back, I think, or brought up again in Canada and the United States, this idea about whether there should be more done about climate change. Yeah. Zoe, as Anita just mentioned, things seem to be getting worse when it comes to climate change. The amount of carbon dioxide released in the last year nearly set a record, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. So why is that not translating into increased political will to address global warming? Well, I mean, first, you could go back decades about the fact that climate, uh, climate change, remember, uh, global warming has been such a political hot potato. I mean, think about just the fact that, you know, it was just a decade ago that it was, you know, climate change was not even believed to be real amongst, you know, a, a group of folks. I think we're finally having conversations about what it means. But... You know, it's it's a slow trickle. And so, you know, it's when you're starting to see a hundred year storms happening, you know, every other year, it's not as in your face. And much like, you know, the the American public as we go about our day and day lives, unless it is hitting us, it seems like <laughs> in our heads every single day. Not much has happened. And I, I certainly don't want to be uh, pessimistic here, but, I, you know, I mean, look at gun control rights right now in conversations. I mean, that is something that's happening on a daily basis in this country, and we don't seem to be able to have conversations about what changes might actually look like or find compromise on it. And so when it's something that's, you know, happening in these sort of spikes of wildfires or, you know, these big storms that happen, but it's not happening every single day and so in front of our faces. Faces. There's also academic studies that show um, that when problems feel so large and immovable, it, we have a tendency to put our heads in the sand paralyzed. because it feels too <laughs> yeah. big. Where do you even start? Although it is going to have real impacts on people. This week, Allstate uh, followed State Farm's lead and says it will no longer insure homes in California. Um, let's move on, though, to talk about CNN, uh, which is looking for a new CEO. Again, Chris Licht joined the channel saying he had a clear view of what was wrong with CNN and a vision on how to fix it. But after just more than a year, CNN's partner company, Warner Brothers, announced Wednesday they had parted ways. Um, So, John, it's been widely acknowledged this was always going to be a tough job. Um, What went wrong here with Chris Licht? Well, I think part of it is that he was the person he was replacing. Jeff Zucker was a a a favorite, a very well uh, loved uh, in the newsroom leader, 
uh, because his his office was right off the newsroom. He loved to get in uh, uh, get into the trenches with the uh, with the uh, with the correspondents and, and producers. But also, you know, news organizations don't like to be the story. Don't like to be the mm. the subject of stories. They want if they're if they're in the papers. They want to be uh, because of what they're reporting, because of their stories that they're breaking news or uh, adding things, uh, adding value to, to news events. But this was uh, with uh, Chris Licht and CNN. They were in the headlines for things you don't want to be in the headlines about, about uh, uh, the workplace culture, uh, about uh, the support he was getting from the staff. And then you have the, uh, the Donald Trump town hall. Uh, which uh, was widely seen as as uh, uh, just a way to give, not 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 to give, but as a way uh, that uh, that it, the way it was produced with the audience, it gave Donald Trump a platform uh, to just to speak. Pat Robertson died this week at the age of ninety three. He founded the Christian Broadcasting Network in nineteen sixty. At the time, it was an experimental media outlet, but it went on to become enormously profitable and influential. It also helped give rise to his own political ambitions. And Anita, while he'll be remembered as a hugely divisive figure, he was also a hugely influential figure. Can you tell me what connection Robertson had to the the divisiveness that we see in our politics today? Well, I mean, he was, as you mentioned, a lot of, of religious figures sometimes figure into politics. He tried to uh, run for president, actually, and he helped make religion sort of central to the Republican Party, you know, and politics uh, through that Christian coalition. So, you know, I don't know about the, you know, I, I think he put that in there, and we're seeing that so many parts of the of the Republican Party are split right now, yeah. and some of that split is on social issues. I mean, that is, we're seeing these with the candidates that are running for for president. That is Politico's Anita Kumar. Thank you so much for joining us today. Also with us, John Yang, anchor for PBS News Weekend, and Zoe Clark. Zoe is the political director at Michigan Radio. Thanks so much to all of you. Before we turn to the international edition of the News Roundup, we remember NPR's Wade Goodwin. Reporters and fans across social media are sharing memories of Wade and his voice and how much they appreciate his journalism and approach to storytelling. Our hearts go out to Wade's family and friends. We're also remembering George Winston. Winston was a Grammy-winning pianist best known for his New Age soothing instrumentals. He sold over 15 million copies of his albums over the course of his career, peaking in the 1980s. He released 16 albums in total and won a Grammy for Best New Age Album for his 1994 record, Forest. Winston died in California on Sunday. He was 73. Coming up on the international edition of the News Roundup, we discuss tensions between the U.S. and China, Brazil's latest plan to end illegal deforestation in the Amazon rainforest, and we'll also dive into the PGAN Live merger and what that means. Stay with us.
On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. If you're a business owner, you know these sounds mean sales. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. Whether you're fulfilling orders from your home office or warehouse, Stamps.com helps you stress less about mailing and shipping and spend more time doing what you love most. Listening to ASMR. I mean, growing your business. But as you grow... So does the need for efficiency. Stamps.com simplifies your shipping and mailing process. Import orders from wherever you sell online. Find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times. Instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers. And buy shipping and mailing supplies when you run low. Save time and money on mailing and shipping. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. We've got a lot of news to get into for the international edition of the Roundup. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak visits Washington and, along with President Biden, the two made several announcements of strengthened ties, but Ukraine was top of their agenda. The UK is proud to be behind the US, the biggest contributor to the military effort in Ukraine. And I think it's right that other countries also step up and do their part. The Pentagon is dismissing reports of efforts by Beijing to establish an electronic eavesdropping facility in Cuba. That reporting, I can tell you based on the information that we have, that that is not accurate, uh, that that we are not aware of China and Cuba uh, developing any type of spy station. Separately, I would say that the relationship that those two countries share is something that we continuously monitor. But are relations between China and the U.S. at a new low? Lots to get to. And with me, we have Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Hi, Nancy. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. In London today, David Rennie is the Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. Hi, David. Hello. And Nick Wadhams is the U.S. National Security Team Leader at Bloomberg News. It is great to have you, Nick. Thanks for having me. 
So let's begin in Ukraine. Uh, Tuesday morning, a Russian-controlled dam in the Kherson region collapsed. That uh, breach flooded thousands of homes, uh, forced evacuations, and left tens of thousands of people without drinking water. Everything is going to die here. Living creatures, all the birds, everything will die. And people will be drowned. That was a Kherson resident speaking to CNN. Thursday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the region to survey the damage as evacuations continued. So, Nancy, just hours after Zelensky had visited, shelling began to hit that flooded regions. What do we know about the attacks So what we've heard is the Ukrainians have said that they came under shelling while they were trying to evacuate the thousands who were stranded there. The Russians claim that they came under strike as well. And we've seen subsequently a real uptick in sort of a launch of operations east of that area. And so um, there have been conflicting accounts about who's attacking whom as they try to rescue those who are in that zone. And today we are seeing for the first time those waters start to come down. And instead of um, rising waters, we're seen um, the tombstones, explosives running through the water going back west and causing another kind of threat to the residents there, Um, not just the flooding, but ordinance potentially endangering them. And so we're starting to see the effects of not only the dam break, but how much it's changed Kherson. Uh, the security risks uh, associated with trying to evacuate people, even as it um, remains unclear who was behind the attack, um, how the dam was damaged. But what we're seeing more than anything is um, the the continued impact of that breach. Well, speaking of the impact, David, many of us have seen photos and video. This is a massive dam, obviously critical, not just for drinking water, as we heard, but for power for a large area. Can you give us an idea of the scale of this this damage and that impact? It's a really dramatic uh, disaster. So this is a big Soviet 1950s dam. Uh, It had its own hydroelectric power, which provided a lot of electricity, but also clean drinking water and irrigation water. Because remember that Ukraine is the breadbasket that a lot of countries buy their wheat uh, from. And so that's a big deal. It is also just upstream of the dam. Uh, There is a reservoir which then feeds an artificial pond, which provides the cooling water for the nuclear power plant that was fought over and then finally controlled by Russian troops in March 2022. that We've talked about on this program many times, Zaporizhia, the largest nuclear power station in Europe. Now, at the moment, it's pretty much shut down. The reactors aren't completely cold, but they're a lot less uh, hot than usual. Even so, that plant needs about a quarter of a million gallons of water an hour And you've seen uh, International Atomic Energy Authority, the UN's atomic agency, saying that for the moment, there isn't an immediate risk because there's still quite a bit of water in that holding pond next to uh, the nuclear power plant. But you can see this extraordinarily irresponsible act, if it was a deliberate act uh, of of military kind of sabotage to blow up this dam that is then going to cut drinking water, not only to uh, Ukrainian-held areas, but also to Russian-held areas. And the flooding is actually mostly on the Russian side because... If listeners imagine those maps of Ukraine they've seen again and again, where basically the right-hand edge of Ukraine near the sea is red and held by Russia, this dam is on the river Dnieper, which runs down one edge. It's the front line between Ukrainian and Russian-held territory. And so there are theories that one reason why Russia might have blown this dam is to stop the Ukrainian counteroffensive from trying to cross that river and attack on the, the Western Bank. Well, and as Nancy alluded to, it's not clear 
what caused the explosion. Nick, Russia and Ukraine are both blaming each other. Russian President Vladimir Putin said the dam's destruction was a, quote, environmental and humanitarian catastrophe. The Russian envoy to the UN called the destruction an unthinkable crime by Ukraine. But uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky put the blame squarely on Russian terrorists and says he has evidence to back that up. What do we know for sure about how the dam was destroyed? Well, it's a great question, and it's one that's been occupying all of us for the last week. I mean, uh, you know, as David mentioned, the, the thing that's so sort of fascinating about this is that while a lot of the suspicion has pointed toward Russia, at least from the international community, at the same time, there are ways in this in, in which this really does not benefit Russia. I mean, Russia, the territory that Russia occupies is on the sort of lower end, you know, the, the high ground is, is on the Ukrainian side, the lower ground is on the Russian side. So there are a lot of reports that when this dam burst, it actually flooded a lot of the Russian lines. Uh, so it would have seemed that there would be, you know, Russia sort of shooting itself in the foot. What, what we have seen from the U.S. intelligence community is a bit of a shift so they came out early and said uh, almost pretty definitively that they believed uh, Russia was responsible and this was a deliberate act. They later unwound that and uh, settled on a position that suggested, you know, we think uh, Russia is the reason why this dam blew up, but we don't know uh, whether it was deliberate or not. What what we do know is that the dam had been mined. It was uh being held by the Russians uh, for many months. Um, and there is now some evidence, or at least a theory out there, that uh, this dam blew up not intentionally, but uh, by accident somehow, um, mm-hmm. and that maybe um, maybe that was the reason for it, that it was not a deliberate act. But still, the okay. timing is, is pretty coincidental because uh, it blew up basically right when we started to learn that Ukraine was in the process of launching a counteroffensive toward Russia. And speaking of that, Nancy, we are seeing a push by Ukrainian forces in Zaporizhia. This might be the long-awaited counteroffensive. Um, there was a surge of attacks in the southeastern front line reported early Thursday. D- do you think this is a new phase of the war? That, that's right. We've seen a lot of uh, movement by the Ukrainian forces, some of them armed with German Leopard tanks and American Bradley fighting vehicles in several areas, and many of them deeply entrenched Russian defense positions along a 600-mile front line. And at the same time, we've also seen reports of Russia saying that they've repelled some of those attacks. And so it certainly has all the hallmarks of an offensive. Um, uh, and and we should I should note that often when offensives start, this is usually the most difficult period because you're trying to breach those defense of positions. But both the U.S. and the Ukrainians have not said that it's the start of offensive, which has contributed to the confusion. Now, the Ukrainians had said that they wouldn't announce it, and the U.S. has said we're not going to get ahead of the uh, Ukrainians on making such an announcement. We heard this from President Biden during his press conference earlier this week. But I think all the hallmarks are there of uh, a counteroffensive and the shaping portion of a counteroffensive in which you're trying to set the conditions to really launch assaults. And so um, it's not spoken. It's not... um, uh, reaffirmed by by those we perhaps some would want to hear from, but the movement on the ground is all has all the markings of a of a counteroffensive um, yeah. by the Ukrainian forces. Yesterday, uh, when UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and President Joe Biden met in Washington, Ukraine was top of their agenda. For the first time in over half a century, we face a war on the European continent, and as we've done before, the US and the UK have stood together to support Ukraine and stand up for the values of democracy and freedom and make sure that they prevail, as I know we will. 
That was Prime Minister Sunak speaking in the Oval Office along with President Biden. So, David, the the pair already announced several economic partnerships. What do you expect might come out of this meeting in relation to Ukraine? Well, the truth is that Britain is very, very heavily involved in Ukraine, not just by providing arms and weapons like other European countries, but you've got British uh, special forces, British generals and officers all over that war offering advice alongside Americans. So that part completely accurate. But I think there's a political reason why, if you're the British Prime Minister meeting Joe Biden right now, you want to talk up that idea of, you know, it's Churchill and Roosevelt. It's back to the kind of the old allies fighting tyranny side by side, because to some extent, alas, that's a much happier place for a British Prime Minister right now than talking about economic cooperation, because <laughs> thanks to Brexit, uh, Britain just doesn't offer America as much. It used to be the bridge to the whole European market and the whole European Union. And Joe Biden has never made any secret of the fact that he doesn't think Brexit was a great idea. And he's got a lot of business to do with Europe. And Britain is part of that, but not in any way a vital part of it. And so I think for all the happy talk about Ukraine, which was based on something real, um, the economic backdrop is that Britain goes as something of a kind of second fiddle Uh, to the rest of Europe. Uh, Let's move to China and the relationship or lack of relationship between the U.S. and China that dominated an annual defense summit in Singapore over the weekend. So, Nancy, you were there. Why did U.S.-China relationships um, suddenly become the focus? I was there, and the whole time that we were at the the forum, the focus was would Lloyd Austin, the defense secretary, meet with his uh, Chinese counterpart. In the run-up to the meeting, the Chinese said they would not meet because the U.S. had placed sanctions on Minister Lee. Uh, before he became defense minister, the U.S. was adamant that they wouldn't remove them, saying that that didn't hinder any talks. And there was just an air of suspense about whether the two sides would meet because I think it's in a climate of escalated tensions between the two sides, um, increased military activity. And so the, there was, I think, a hope among some of the region that that both sides would find a way to sort of de-escalate tensions. And the closest that they came to was agreeing to a handshake before a dinner. Um, but there was wasn't any consensus that seemed to be reached. Both men gave a speech. Um, Secretary Austin focused on allies and partners, and Minister Lee said that we shouldn't have interference from outside partners and, or outside powers um, in, uh, implicating the United States, but not saying the U.S. directly. And in the middle of all these um, back and forth speeches and people watching the two sides of who would engage and if there would be any sort of outreach there, the U.S. conducted a transit through the South China Sea mm. and the Chinese um, um according to the U.S., did a sort of dangerous maneuver around the around that U.S. destroyer. So um, it was an environment where I think um, a lot were hoping that there'd be some opening for de-escalating tensions. And I think at best it was a stalemate and no clear path for um, resuming talks. And uh, despite the U.S. Um, push to, to get those talks going again. Also, Monday, Defense Secretary Austin talked about uh, deepening and strengthening the U.S. relationship with India. Nick, what is a stronger relationship between the U.S. and India have to do with China? Well, uh, it's a great question. I mean, the U.S. has been for a a long time looking to India to play this role as a counterweight to China in the region. India is part of this quad grouping that the U.S. has. Uh, But, you know, India has made clear every step of the way that it is a partner only insofar as being a partner serves its own interests. 
so the U.S. is certainly uh, it, it wants other countries to ally with it against China, though they say it's not a with us or against us situation. That is, you know, according to people we've spoken to many times over the last couple of years, essentially the equation that the U.S. is laying out in India has made very clear uh, that it doesn't want to play that game. And you see that uh, particularly with Russia, where the U.S. basically wants India's help, one, in condemning Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, but also in uh, really uh, serving as a, as a counterweight to Russia, severing all ties. And India's basically said, listen, you know, we're, we're not going to do that. We're only going to do that when it, when it serves our interests. So, you know, what's really interesting to me about that dynamic is you have a, a, a real shift in the way the world works for the U.S. They go out into the world and say, okay, here's how we want things to be. Here's the role we want you to play. And you have a country like India saying, hey, we're willing to be a partner, but not we're not willing to go so far as being an ally. And, and you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that. Although... It- David, uh, India has been trying to strengthen its domestic defense industry and and reduce its reliance on imports, particularly from Russia. Before Up till now, Russia has been the largest supplier of military hardware to India, despite the war in Ukraine. How might we see this moving forward as India walks this tight walk Nick has just described, this tight wire? It's, it's all about China. Uh, so I, uh, back in the day, I went to, when I was in the Washington Bureau Chief, I went to India with two different uh, U.S. Defense Secretaries, uh, Chuck Hagel and uh, Ash Carter, and they both wanted to sell India weapons and talk about factories that would make uh, sort of American-designed weapons in India, and they didn't get very far. What has changed is that China is now so aligned, uh, so openly aligned with Russia and has such incredible influence over a very dependent Russia that if you're India and you get 60% of your defense equipment from Russia, your fear is that in a border conflict, perhaps with China, what happens if Xi Jinping picks up the phone in Beijing and says to Vladimir Putin, don't send your most advanced weapons or any new ammunition to India, because that's going to hurt our soldiers on the Chinese side. And maybe Russia now has no choice but to listen. So I think, although Nick is absolutely right that India's non-aligned tradition makes it very, very wary of being dragged into any kind of alliance with America or condemning Russia, it's also not happy about being dependent for its arms on a Russia that is now much more dependent on China, which is India's enemy. So in that geopolitical chess game, there is an opportunity for the Americans. So Nancy, during this second visit to India by Austin, he's expecting to lay the groundwork for Prime Minister Narendra Modi's visit to Washington later this month. You traveled to India with the secretary. Do you have any idea uh, what the Modi trip might look like? Well, one of the things that I took away from our time in New Delhi was that the secretary was there to sort of lay the groundwork for um, defense, industrial, and tech cooperation between um, the two nations. And as David points out, when we asked about this in terms of specifics and timeline, that they they struggled to offer it other than say it's a years-long process. But my sense was that ahead of Modi's June 22nd visit, to the United States that the secretary was there to sort of lay the groundwork so that there'd be some sort of deliverable, a defense contract that they could, the, the two leaders could announce during that visit. Um, and so uh, while this is very much in its early stages, and as David notes, this is an, um, something that's been tried before in the past, 
this was an attempt this week to sort of make sure that when that state visit happens, that the two sides are able to say, here's the beginning of this long sought defense cooperation relationship between the United States and India. And David, we did want to touch on some reporting you did on the Chinese Communist Party's stance on LGBTQ rights in China. Can you tell us a little bit about what you discovered? Yeah, so we've had some really sad uh, stories about some important NGOs doing really constructive good work in the the gay community in China, um, which have been shut down under police pressure, uh, and some of their leaders basically threatened with kind of criminal punishment if they don't uh, if they don't shut down, and some of them have had to flee into exile. And the puzzle there is that it it isn't like Uganda. This is not a country, China, where being gay itself is illegal anymore. That hasn't been the case for years. And so I set out to ask these NGOs, when you were being threatened by the police, what were they really worried about? Was it gay rights or something else? And they said, it's actually that they kept saying, are you being paid by the Americans? Are you being paid by foreign embassies? Is this an attempt by Western hostile forces to use gay rights uh, as a wedge to attack China? And we see this more and more in Xi Jinping's China, that there is this absolute paranoia about anything to do with democracy, human rights, Uh, Christianity, feminism, gay rights, even environmental activists, they're all seen as potential agents attacking China. Um, Nancy, speaking of the Wall Street Journal, some reporting on Thursday about an effort by Beijing to establish an electronic eavesdropping facility in Cuba, which raised a lot of eyebrows. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it was a major story by my colleagues about the, an agreement in which um, China would pay Cuba billions of dollars to be able to set up um, essentially a spy station in their country, um, 90 miles from the U.S. border. This comes at a time when, as we've discussed throughout this program, relations between the U.S. and China um, are are really strained. And so this caused, I think, uh, a lot of attention in Washington because it was sort of the most demonstrative display um, and, and, and a very aggressive of China sort of reacting to these um, um, weakened relationships between the U.S. and and itself to um, set up a spy station so close to the U.S. border. We heard earlier the Pentagon, Pentagon dismissed this story. Um, what comments, if any, have come from Cuba or China? Well, we've heard, yes, the administration said that the story wasn't accurate, but didn't say specifically what. We've seen from other stories that have followed up to it in political New York Times, from from what I can tell based on that, that they had issue with sort of the finality of the deal or whether it was in principle. That's my sort of reading in between the lines based on other people's reporting. Um, obviously, I'm not um, objective at all, but I would argue I'm not, I wouldn't, I don't see that as an inaccuracy. And I think we're going to see, um, and we continue to see some reaffirmation of that in other reporting. The Cubans, um, said it wasn't true, but, um, uh, I'm not sure that, uh, that they're trust. reliable, that they have an incentive to, <laughs> um, to be as uh, forthright about that. But I think it really speaks to the sensitivity of what we're discussing. It's such an, a major development in terms of Cuba's willingness to work with China, to China's aims to spy on the United States, to where the state of relations are. And I should also note that this comes at a time when um, just a few days ago we heard that Secretary Blinken was trying to resume his uh, trip to Beijing after it was canceled during uh, Balloon Gate in which um, a Chinese spy was fine of the United States. So there are political sensitivities around the reporting of this now, given the U.S. attempt to sort of reset relations and get them on a better track. And um, I can't help but wonder if there was some sort of that had some say in sort of some of the reaction we saw to the piece. But yeah, um, and that's Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State. Um, I, I want to move on to talk about the PGA Tour, um, which is the world's largest professional golf league. It is merging with the Saudi Arabia funded Live 
golf tour. Now, Live was started in 2021 as a competitor to the PGA. Since then, they have lured a number of PGA players just through cash, <laughs> massive playouts to these players. Players who joined Live were forced to resign from the PGA Tour. Now, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan spoke about the merger in a meeting with players this week, and he had previously made comments that questioned the source of Live's funding. I recognize everything that you know that I've that I've said in the past and in, in my prior positions. I recognize that people are going to call me a hypocrite, and any time I've said anything. I said it with the information I had at that moment, and I said I said it based on someone that's trying to compete for the PGA Tour and our players. Um, and so I accept those criticisms, but circumstances do change. And I think that, you know, in looking at the big picture and looking, looking at looking at it this way, that's that's what that's what got us to this point. So, Nick, one might say this is just golf. Why is this international news? Uh, well, uh, it's just golf and it's also just money. Um, I mean, that's that's basically what it comes down to. I mean, I, I found this story absolutely fascinating because, you know, as a State Department reporter for six years, I spent a lot of time shuttling to Saudi Arabia with Rex Tillerson, Mike Pompeo, and then Anthony Blinken. And all of them wrestled with this issue of, you know, interests versus values. There's obviously a huge amount of U.S. interests tied up with Saudi Arabia as a bulwark against Iran as a key source of oil, all sorts of stuff, and then and then values on the other hand, human rights, and the fact that you know the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post columnist, and the fact that Saudi Arabia, while they are making efforts toward reform, uh, in a lot of ways their human rights record has actually gotten worse over the years. And you know, President Biden, as a candidate for president, said he was essentially going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah, and that was in response to what he and many in his in his, who are now in his administration, told us at the time when they were on the outside, you know, look at, at what President Donald Trump is doing. He's far too close with the Saudis. Uh, this is an, an odious situation, and President Biden's going to be much different. Um, obviously, you know, the Biden calculation, circumstances changed uh, mm. as, the, as the Biden administration went along. And then, you know, you have this as the sort of final nail in the coffin of that human rights first approach. You know, obviously the administration had its had to change its tune. And it turned out these U.S. companies that had also taken that approach, they weren't really listening either. They also had to change their tune. And, and again, you know, that sport washing claim against Saudi Arabia, they're just throwing a ton of money at these folks. And, and that seems to have won the day. And after the PGA Tour Live merger was announced, an organization representing families of victims of 9-11 blasted uh, Monaghan, the commissioner, for turning his back on them, as they say. Uh, part of their statement read, our entire 9-11 community has been betrayed uh, by Commissioner Monaghan and the PGA, as it appears their concern for our loved ones was merely min- window dressing in their quest for money. It was never to honor the great game of golf. What happens next, David? Um, I guess uh, some very rich golfers get even richer. And, uh, and we all move on. Nancy, do you see any way forward that might change this news on this merger? 
I don't. I mean, I was personally fascinated that I've been on this program talking about um, players like Phil Mickelson being um, banned indefinitely from participating in the PGA for signing these yeah. deals and, and reportedly two hundred million dollars. And now, um, now that seems to all have gone away. And and I'm also fascinated by the accusation that what the Saudis are doing are, is engaging in what's been described as sports watching, in which sports washing, excuse me, in which they um, use sports um, to try to win over the international community and l- make them forget a little bit about the human rights record. They invested in a, uh, a British uh, soccer team. They have their own Grand Prix. Sports, I think, has been a mechanism for the Saudis to reach out to the international community. This is sort of the biggest example of it, but it's one that potentially changes the game of golf in the U.S. Um, and so I think the impact in the U.S. is bigger than we've seen in some of their previous efforts. Interesting. Um, so uh, Sudan's warring sides have agreed to a nationwide ceasefire for 24 hours that starts early Saturday. That was announced this morning by Saudi Arabia and the U.S. That's one in a series of ceasefires since fighting began in mid-April. Do we have any sense, Nancy, of whether this one will actually hold? I think there's... Um I don't know. I'd say uh, cautious optimism, but not uh, not very high because this is the latest um, after a series of failed attempts to stop the weeks of fighting between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces paramilitary group. Um, this was a deal um, worked out by the Saudis and uh, the United States announced it. It's supposed to start at um, 6 a.m. local time. Um, but I think it really speaks to the attempts to try to find a solution. Um, to, to break the cycle of deadly violence that has caused such a massive humanitarian yeah. crisis. And so um, it's hard to be optimistic fully because of the past deals, but it is, I think, the latest attempt by the international community to stop true, a true crisis. So, David, now let's move to Brazil. On Monday, President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva announced his plan to end illegal deforestation in the Amazon rainforest by 2030. O Brasil voltará a ser referência mundial em He says Brazil will once again become a global reference in sustainability, tackling climate change and achieving targets for carbon emission reduction and zero deforestation. So, David, Lula has been very vocal about uh, wanting to end illegal deforestation since he was elected. What do we know about this plan? Look, Lula is in many ways a very problematic figure, uh, certainly for the United States, because, you know, he's pretty soft on Russia. He's pretty soft on China. But he is unambiguously good news for the climate. Why? Well, Brazil is home to the Amazon rainforest, this giant lung for the planet. And when he was in office last time round, he took deforestation really seriously. And we saw deforestation stop, uh, illegal deforestation really plummet during his last time in office. Then, obviously, most recently, Brazil had a right-wing populist, President Jair Bolsonaro, who was uh, not only a climate change skeptic, but very much uh, allied with powerful agricultural forces, people like cattle barons, uh, who were very happy to see the rainforest cut down to create uh, grazing land for cows with really appalling environmental consequences. And Lula's return to office for all the other problems that it causes, in some ways, the West, because he's a fairly hostile figure to the Western rules-based order, he has a record of taking these things seriously and coming up with plans with teeth, with proper enforcement of uh, rules that, you know, punish people for illegal forestation. He's also got a plan to have uh, legal deforestation where there is a permit, 
it's kind of one for one that when they cut down trees legally, they will be replaced with other trees. And the final big deal from the climate's point of view is that those 2015 Paris climate accords, which was so important at seeing countries like America and China making really unprecedented promise, Brazil, which is a very big country with pretty big emissions, made some ambitious promises of its own to cut greenhouse gases. Now, those promises were basically almost scrapped by the right-wing previous president, Bolsonaro. And one of the other announcements is that Lula basically restored those old promises from the Paris Agreement. So it is potentially a very big deal. And given how unbelievably central Brazil is to the whole world's ecosystem, I think we have to applaud this. Well, since we're talking about climate, we should talk about the wildfires that are burning in Canada. More than 10 million acres there have already burned. That is about 15 times the 10-year average. Smoke from those fires led to dangerous air quality conditions in major U.S. cities, including Philadelphia, New York, and then here in Washington. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says this summer is expected to be a particularly severe fire season. Year after year, With climate change, we're seeing more and more intense wildfires and in places where they don't normally happen. That's why we've invested to train more community-based firefighters across the country. For example, we've worked with the Yukon First Nations Wildfire Partnership to train 130 wildland firefighters in Yukon and northern British Columbia. So, Nick, what has Trudeau said about why this current season is going to be so much worse? Well, it's uh, almost uh, exclusively because it's a drought uh, situation in, in Canada. It's, it's far drier uh, than it has been in the past. Um, and, you know, uh, this is a good reminder, I, I think, for all of us. You know, I lived in Beijing for five years during uh, the worst of the uh, quote-unquote crazy bad era when uh, pollution levels were were really off the charts. And, um, you know, living in D.C. and having friends and family in New York uh, this week, it's sort of a, a reminder of, of how bad pollution is in so many places around the world. I mean, folks in D.C. were are really, um, you know, staying indoors because the pollution, the AQI, you know, air quality index was getting, you know, to around 200 you know, when we were in, in Beijing with our three kids, anything below 200 was a day when you sent your kids out to play because it was routinely so much worse. Now it's gotten a lot better there, but other countries like India and elsewhere uh, really suffer uh, under uh, massive pollution. And, and so it's it's it feels a little bit like it's finally hitting home uh, for the U.S. Um, in a, a situation that, that afflicts so many other countries. Let's talk about another disaster in this hemisphere. A 4.9 magnitude earthquake struck Haiti Tuesday. The southern coastal city of Jeremy was the worst hit. Haitian authorities say at least four people were killed, more than 30 injured. Tuesday's earthquake comes as Haiti struggles to recover from heavy floods and torrential rains over the weekend. Uh, Those killed at least 50 people and injured more than 140 and flooded more than 31,000 homes. This is Fania Kanje, a resident of Leogan, Haiti. I lost a five-year-old child. I risked losing two children, but God left the other one hanging in a tree. I saved one, but I lost one anyway. My house was swept away by the floods. I lost everything. 
Well, India continues grieving this week. There was a, the deadliest train accident in the country's history. Uh, on Friday, a three-train accident in the eastern Odisha state killed at least 275 people. So far, only 45 bodies have been identified. 33 have been handed over to relatives. Authorities say the accident was suspected to be caused by an error in the electronic single signaling system that led to a train um, wrongly changing tracks and then crashing into a freight train. Now, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has pledged to hold those responsible um, for the crash accountable. But David, where are they in this investigation? What details do we have? It's still really basic what we know. I mean, the basics are that they were, there was a, a packed passenger express train heading south to the big city of Chennai, and it was sent for reasons we don't yet know, into a siding, where, as you say, there was a stationary freight train. And when that packed passenger train hit the freight train, it derailed, obviously. But then, unfortunately, some of the rear carriages of that first express train were basically thrown across the tracks into the path of another passenger train coming north. And so it was that three trains together, two of them packed passenger trains with thousands of people on board. And the truth is that India has is incredibly reliant on trains. You have 12,000 passenger trains a day carrying something like 25 million passengers every single day. And yet this creaking system uh, has dozens and dozens of derailments every year, some from 40 tracks, some from 40 trains, some from driver error. And so this is really a kind of part of a bigger story about the fact that India is this giant power that we're all looking to, to hedge against China, to be the next technological giant of the future. And yet some fairly basic infrastructure is really nowhere near at the level that it needs to be. And the accountability is also nowhere near where it needs to be. And sometimes these disasters are amazingly quickly uh, forgotten and people just move on to the next one. Nancy, I wonder if it is just a question of the the age of this system. As as David just mentioned, in 2021, more than 16,000 people were killed in nearly 18,000 rail accidents across India. What's wrong with the system there? Well, the, it's 40,000 miles of tracks, much of it um, put down during the British colonial period. And while um, prime, the prime minister has put um, and the government has put billions of dollars into the rail system, a lot of that money has been towards the flashier things, the trains and new new trains, not the technology, the signals, the things that you need to sort of make it safe. And so that has been the disconnect, that, that there hasn't been a government committed to sort of fixing the basics but rather um, putting money into sort of the, the, um, the, the more demonstrative um, forms of investment into the rail system. So you have the system that's decades old um, and, and so ubiquitous um, in India. And as David noted, millions riding it every day. And yet there hasn't been the investment in the basic infrastructure. It has been the things that um, Indians can see in terms of the new trains, but not the things that ultimately have impacted safety, which is ba- basic things like like signals and, and some of the structural changes and updates that need to happen. Why do you think the, the memory is so short after these train accidents that they fall out of the news headlines so quickly? 
Well, I think part of it is that um, there has been an expectation um, that that rail prices stay down, that they have, frankly, happened less now than they did just a few years ago, that there was some feeling of success. And mm. so there hasn't, there has been some sense that there's been some improvement. Um, and I think because of some of the other economic challenges and some of the other um, p- problems um, with within the Indian economy, that this hasn't been um, my pr- priority. I mean, it's, Every country has that issue that um, keeps bedeviling it and, and doesn't seem to tackle it. And I think this is this is one of those issues for for India. Um, so one of the most notorious spies in U.S. history, Robert Hansen, was found dead in a federal prison in Colorado on Monday. Hansen had been serving a life sentence since 2002. He's reported to have died of natural causes at the age of 79. Hansen was a former FBI agent who traded secrets with Moscow in exchange for cash and diamonds. Nick, can you remind us what kind of secrets, what kind of intelligence did Hansen hand over to Russia when he was a spy? Well, there are two big ones. Uh, One was that he disclosed the existence of a tunnel that the U.S. had installed below the Soviet embassy uh, in Washington, and that was essentially a treasure trove for the U.S. because it allowed it to monitor a lot of uh, Soviet communications. Um, So he he, uh, told the Soviets about that one. And then uh, the other big one was that the U.S. had a couple of very, actually three very high-placed KGB sources uh, in the Soviet Union, and uh, Robert Hansen betrayed them, and uh, you know two of them were later executed. So those were the big ones. You know, th- th- this case is so fascinating to me because uh, when he was caught, um, he said essentially, you know, what took you so long? And he had described uh, the security protocols around the FBI's computer networks as essentially being criminally negligent. Um, and there are obvious parallels here between Robert Hansen and his ability to access classified information on, on you know, pretty young U.S. computer networks at that time and what happened a few months ago where the U.S. identified this 21-year-old airman out of a, uh, a, base, a U.S. base in Cape Cod who was essentially accessing classified information and then, and then spreading it all over the Internet. So there are sort of disturbing parallels between you know, what what Robert Hansen was able to access and, and the degree to which the U.S. still struggles to keep a lid on its classified information. I remember when the story came out in 2001, he certainly wasn't caught because he was living lavishly. He had this modest home in suburban Virginia and drove a minivan. Can you remind us how he was caught? Uh, well, essentially, the U.S. paid about $7 million to uh, a well, then Russian, because of after, it, was, it was after the fall of the Soviet Union, a uh, defector who turned over a file um, that had uh, a lot of information about a mole uh, deep in uh, the U.S., and the way that they were able to identify him was uh, through because uh, that file included a, a voice recording of um, this mole talking to uh, their Russian handlers and uh, FBI agents who listened to that were able to identify him um, and tracked him down and, and uh, arrested him actually after he was trying to make a dead drop to uh, his uh, Russian handlers uh, in Virginia. We do have about 30 seconds left. So, Nancy, let me give you a little bit of time here to talk. tell me about what you're watching for in the week to come. 
Well, my intention has been uh, since March 29th on Evan Gertzowicz, our colleague who's been held in Russia, um, and the efforts to sort of um, secure his release. As you know, he's been wrongly detained for doing his job of being a reporter. And so um, every day um, my focus is on him and um, getting the word out about um, what's his plight and and, and hopefully um, helping others learn about him and, and call for his release. I hope so, too. Um, I want to say thank you to my panel, Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. David Rennie is the Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist and co-host of the Drum Tower podcast. And Nick Wadhams is the U.S. National Security Team Leader at Bloomberg News. So appreciate all your insights and hope that you will come back. And before we go, a remembrance. Tall and tan and young and lovely, the girl When she walks, she's like the samba that swings so cool and sways so gentle that There are thousands of covers, but only Astrid Gilberto could bring the girl from Ipanema to life. The Brazilian singer passed away this week on Monday at the age of 83. Gilberto is perhaps best known in the U.S. for the international hit The Girl from Ipanema. Because of the huge success of that song, she's credited for popularizing that relaxed samba-jazz hybrid genre of bossa nova in the U.S., in the 1960s. In 1963, Gilberto moved to the U.S., and apart from Bossa Nova, she was also associated with American jazz music throughout her decades-long career. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. Barbon Guiano produces our podcast with help from Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month.
The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.